Our scripture reading this evening is from Acts chapter 15, verses 1 through 35, a text that describes what uh, we sometimes call the Jerusalem Council. Perhaps this is obvious and unnecessary for me to point out, but the reason I've selected this text and the title, How to Handle Church Disagreements, is because we have just met together as a synod, as the leaders of our denomination. And the reason that we have a synod um, is because of disagreements. Now, that may sound negative, but if, if all Christians were truly of one mind, never disagreed, never saw things differently, always answered the questions the same, we would have no need to meet together as a synod. We would just make the same decisions apart from the counsel of one another, but that's not how it works. Acts 15 is the first of what we might call the New Testament church synods, a gathering of believers, representatives from different um, churches to resolve a disagreement. And so we have here wonderful principles for how to handle church disagreements, why we have synods, why we have leadership. As an encouragement, it's, it was my observation this past week, that the principles that we'll be reflecting on in the second point, the application, how to handle church disagreements, um, all of the principles that are laid out, or that I'll highlight at least from Acts 15, were practiced beautifully at the synod that we had the privilege to attend last week. So we had a wonderful example of how to handle church disagreements. I won't tie that, all of those into our sonical decisions, but just be encouraged by that. So let me read Acts 15, 1 through 35. Some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. Therefore, being sent on their way by the church, they were passing through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and were bringing great joy to all the brethren. When they arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up saying, It is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why do you put God to the test? by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. All the people kept silent. And they were listening to Barnabas and Paul as they were relating what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they had stopped speaking, James answered, saying, Brethren, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. 
With this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After these things I will return, and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David which has fallen, and I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from long ago. Therefore, it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles but that we write to them that they abstain from things contaminated by idols and from fornication and from what is strangled and from blood. For Moses from ancient generations has in every city those who preach him, since he is read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, Judas called Barsabbas, and Silas leading men from among the brethren. And they sent this letter by them. The apostles and the brethren who are elders to the brethren in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia who are from the Gentiles, greetings. Since we have heard that some of our number to whom we gave no instruction have disturbed you with their words unsettling your souls, it seemed good to us having become of one mind to select men to send to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore we have sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will also report the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials, that you abstain from things sacrificed to idols and from blood and from things strangled and from fornication. If you keep yourselves free from such things, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent away, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. When they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Judas and Silas, also being prophets themselves, encouraged and strengthened the brethren with a lengthy message. After they had spent time there, they were sent away from the brethren in peace to those who had sent them out. But it seemed good to Silas to remain there. But Paul and Barnabas stayed in Antioch, teaching and preaching with many others also, the word of the Lord. Amen. We mentioned in the introduction that um, Acts 15 was, a, was about resolving a disagreement. But after reading Acts 15 now, we might wonder if the issues that the Jerusalem Council addressed are no longer relevant. You might have noticed as we read that the chief... Um, point of conflict was that uh, some said you must be circumcised in order to be saved. You must keep the law of Moses. Now, I've never in my ministry had anyone argue with me that keeping the law of Moses is essential for salvation. So we might wonder, well, the issue's different. Is the chapter relevant? But let's dig a little deeper. Have you ever been judged by another Christian because your customs differ from theirs? Have you ever been offended by the behavior of others? Have you ever felt like God couldn't accept you because you don't measure up to his law? Have you ever had to make a hard decision as a church leader? Or have you ever had to submit to a hard decision by church leadership. Um, all of these questions are raised 
by Acts chapter 15 and the Jerusalem Council. The, the Jerusalem Council's importance goes way beyond the value of circumcision. We'll close this evening by asking what we can learn from the Jerusalem Council, but let's first of all answer this question. What was the Jerusalem Council? So what's, what's happening here? What is it all about? Why was it called? What did it do? And then we'll look at some, some applications in the second point. So what was the Jerusalem Council? Short answer is this. The Jerusalem Council was how the church resolved a division-causing disagreement in the church of Antioch. It's how the church resolved a division-causing disagreement in the church of Antioch. And Luke, the writer of the book of Acts, tells the story of the Jerusalem Council in three movements. The first movement in verses 1 through 5 is the disagreement in the church of Antioch. So here's the disagreement that caused the division. And verse 1 names the problem. Some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, verse 5 will later tell us that some of the people spreading this message were, in fact, believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees. So some of these people, at least, believed that Jesus was the Christ. They believed that the Messiah described in the Old Testament was none other than Jesus of Nazareth. They got the connection between the facts of the Old Testament and the life of Jesus right to a degree. But they didn't understand the sufficiency of his sacrifice for sinners. They would have said, like many in our uh, culture would say, of course Jesus is Savior. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the Messiah. You'd meet many people um, in our community who would agree with that. But they didn't understand the sufficiency of the sacrifice. They said, you must do something else in order to be saved. You must obey the law of Moses, specifically comply with the um, ceremony of circumcision. Moreover, because of that approach, they created these... um, Troublemakers in the church, they created two tiers in the church, two lists of membership, an A list and a B list. Um, The circumcised were on the A list, the uncircumcised were on the B list. So there's there's this, this disagreement, this conflict. And we read that the church attempted to resolve the conflict. There was much debate and dissension. But here's what we learn from verse 2, that when the congregation was unable to resolve the disagreement internally, they sent delegates to a broader assembly of church leaders. And that's a very important principle for us as well today. We need, in the Church of Christ today, leaders and members with that commitment. We couldn't figure it out as a church. That's what verses 1 through 5 are saying. We couldn't figure it out. There was much dissension, much debate. We tried working out, but we couldn't figure it out. But we won't quit. 
We won't quit. We will get help from the broader church. Of course, that's what our uh, broader assemblies are all about as well. And so we see this, this disagreement in the church of Antioch. And because the disagreement couldn't be resolved internally, the disagreement was brought to a broader assembly. And that brings us to the second movement in Luke's telling of this story. And that is in verses 6 through 21, the deliberation of the council. So the Jerusalem council, the delegates that met in Jerusalem, deliberated. They didn't come prejudiced. They didn't come to say, we know how we're going to, how to, how to vote. We know what we're going to do. They deliberated. And they, they gave arguments. They listened to arguments. And here are the three main arguments that Luke records in terms of how to answer the uh, the false doctrine that was being propagated by the Judaizers. Um, Speaker number one, Peter, argues that God is saving one people purely by grace through faith. Peter's uh, uh, saying that circumcision is excluded as a factor in salvation. Circumcision is excluded as a factor in salvation. Now, in, in Peter's argument here, he tacitly acknowledged that the ceremonial law, historically, including circumcision, had distinguished Jews from Gentiles. This distinction emphasized holiness, the, the difference that God's people must live between themselves and the world. It also taught the doctrine of election, that God puts a mark upon his people. But as our Belgic Confession says, the ceremonies and symbols of the law have ended with the coming of Christ. This is essentially Peter's argument. And Peter says in verses 8 and 9 that as proof of this, that at the coming of Christ, God annulled the distinction between Jew and Gentile in terms of how what it means for relating to God as proof of this God by sending his holy spirit on the gentiles peter says made no distinction between us Jews and them gentiles having cleansed their hearts by faith peter's really saying look i get it this is this is a difficult question peter stumbled over this question as well didn't he and had to be rebuked by the Apostle Paul. So this is a hard question. But Peter says, listen, the Holy Spirit has answered the question. Definitively, by, by, by being poured out upon Jews and Gentiles. He didn't make a distinction on who was circumcised and who wasn't circumcised. And so Peter's point is that Jews must not burden Gentiles by insisting on circumcision as some of who were coming out of the Jerusalem church were saying. Peter, Peter, part of his point is that by insisting on circumcision, you're putting a formidable barrier to adult male converts to join the church. Peter's also arguing that as a requirement for salvation, the law becomes a burden. Now we know that the law is good, we would not describe the law objectively as a burden. 
But as a requirement for salvation, it becomes a burden. And Peter is saying, why would we now put a burden on the Gentiles, which we ourselves have not um, been able to observe? Remember that the law gives orders. It cannot give rest. Only Jesus can do that. That's, part of, that's Peter's main point. Yes, the law is good. The law, in terms of cer- the ceremony of circumcision, served a purpose of distinguishing us from Gentiles. But, it, but it's constantly making demands. It can't give rest. Only Jesus can do that. So that's speaker number one, Peter. Number two, Paul and Barnabas, verse 12 says, related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And this is, a, this is a weighty argument. Now to us, it probably doesn't sound that surprising. Of course does God does miraculous works among Jews and Gentiles. But that's not what the Jewish church of this day expected. The Jewish church expected God to do signs and miracles among themselves. But Paul and Barnabas says, look, everywhere we went on that first missionary journey, God was doing amazing things among Gentiles. To the early church, this should have, and and did in this case, work to confirm that God was already at work among uncircumcised Gentiles. God didn't wait to do signs and wonders among uh, Gentiles upon their circumcision. He's doing wonderful things. And then the third speaker, James, told how the prophets predicted the Gentiles' full inclusion among God's people, verses 13 through 18. So what James is saying is, brothers, this is a remarkable thing that's happening. God is saving people. He's pouring out His Spirit upon people. He's doing marvelous works among people who are Gentiles. And this is, this is surprising to us, but it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be surprising because the prophets foretold this. He, he mentions... Some words of Amos in chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. Through Amos, God had long ago promised that when he rebuilt the tent of David that has fallen, the Gentiles would seek the Lord. A lot could be said here, of course, but the the tent of David, the leadership of David, had fallen in the, the lapse of the Davidic kingship at least as far as the eye could see. There was an end of the leadership of David's line in Jerusalem. That tent had fallen. But in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the true son of David and son of God, that tent was raised up. The promise that God had made to David that there will be a son of yours who will reign on the throne, that promise had come true. So the tent is raised up, and now in response to that, as Amos promised, the Gentiles will seek the Lord. And so um, God restored David's tent by sending Jesus to sit on his throne as the great king. And as Jesus ascended into heaven, he opens the door to every believer, regardless of their circumcision status. And so that's the deliberation of the council. There's historic arguments, there's experiential, personal arguments, there's scriptural arguments. Now the third thing that Luke tells us in terms of recording the movements of this synod is the decision of the council in verses 19 through 35. James' advice was adopted by the council. Listen to verse 19. We should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. 
That's really what the Judaizers were doing, troubling Gentiles who had turned to God. Oh, you, you can turn to God, that, that's all well and good, but you must be circumcised. You must obey all of these rules. The, the council says that's troubling the Gentiles. The, the principle here for us is at least this. I would say there's, there's two principles. The church must not keep people from Jesus through unbiblical requirements. The Judaizers were laying down an unbiblical requirement. You jump through this hoop and then Jesus will accept you. But it was an unbiblical requirement. We, 2,000 years later, should not put up man-made hurdles for people to overcome if they would join God's family. Now, of course, there are, there are um, God-made uh, processes that converts must, must observe to, to truly join the church. We must maintain those, but we must not erect um, standards in addition to Scripture, uh, or especially contrary to Scripture. You must jump through these hurdles. So, so we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who, who turn to God. Church mustn't do that. But for, the, for their part, the Gentiles should uh, have responsibilities too. So what, what the decision of the council is, it's really twofold. First of all, church don't put hurdles, man-made hurdles in front of the Gentiles. Gentiles, understand your weaknesses and honor the consciences of other church members. So there's a word here too for those coming into the church, even today. Um, so here, here's how that principle works. Prior to conversion, in this day, at this time, and so today as well, Gentiles considered sexual immorality normal. The Gentiles of, of this day would not even have used the phrase sexual immorality. They just would have used the phrase sexuality or you know, sexual expression. They just considered it normal. Imagine growing, growing up in a culture, in a family, um, where it was just normal to uh, have a sexual life that looked nothing like God's standard for his holy people. So what the Jerusalem church is saying is, Gentiles, know your weakness. That's why, isn't it interesting that of all of the commandments that the Jerusalem church could have pushed uh, upon the uh, Gentiles coming into the church, the church singles out the seventh commandment because that was totally foreign to their way of, of living. So know your weakness. Um, and understand, Gentiles, that coming to Jesus will require big changes. But, but the changes, you see, come through the cross, not prior to the cross. The Jerusalem church isn't putting another stumbling block in front of the Gentiles. He's telling church members, as 1 Timothy 3.15 says, how one ought to behave in the household of God. So he's not saying, do this and you can become a Christian, and besides trusting in Jesus and repenting of your sins. He's saying, this is how you conduct yourself in the household of God. So, included in this was being respectful of the customs of the church. That's why the reference is made to not eating things uh, all, uh, strangled or eating things with their blood. He's not putting another burden on them. He's saying, look, if you do this, it'll be highly offensive to the people that you're trying to live in a, as a family member with. And so don't, just don't do it. it wouldn't be, it'd be unwise. It wouldn't be respectful to your new brothers and sisters. Now, we know 
that the church wasn't placing a new burden on the Gentiles because the Bible says that when the Gentiles heard the answer of the Jerusalem Council, they rejoiced. They rejoiced. They didn't have to follow circumcision or the other laws. Everything the Jerusalem Council said to them was good news. So that's a glimpse at what the Jerusalem Council was. Second question that I want to answer this evening, what can we learn from the Jerusalem Council, specifically about handling disagreements? I want to quickly set before six principles drawn from this, these verses that can work uh, with God's help for us today as well. Number one, champion the gospel. Champion the gospel. The view that seemed good to the Jerusalem church leaders, as James puts it, is the view of the entire Bible, and that is that Jesus is enough. Their answer, the church's answer to the Gentiles is a champion, championing of Jesus Christ. He's enough. He's done it all. No matter who you are, or what you have done, if you are trusting in Jesus, every demand of God has been met. Even the demand of circumcision. Because we believe that Jesus Christ fulfilled circumcision by being circumcised on the cross, by being cut off from God's people, having become sin for us. By true faith in Jesus Christ alone, God treats you as if you had been, the Catechism says, as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for you. The message of the church here in handling this disagreement is this, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. And friends, we may never soften this truth. To have disagreements, uh, to, rather to handle disagreements in the church, we must have a, a sort of spirit of compromise, but we may never compromise on this. We must always champion the gospel in handling our disagreements, and that's what the early church did. Number two, the, the council teaches us to contend to learn. Struggle to learn, debate and dissent in order to learn. I think we know that not, uh, this doesn't always happen in the church. There is contention without an interest in learning. But Jerusalem councilmen set a better example for us in Acts chapter 15. Verses 12 and 13 set a, a beautiful tone of this meeting, it tells us that church leaders in an argument of the utmost significance, not will report A be received or report B, or do we strike this line in favor of this word, nothing like that, but in face of, the, of a controversy of the utmost significance, church leaders became silent and listened to what others had to say. How much disagreement in the church could be, uh, could be resolved if we contended to learn, to, to, to be silent and listen, um, to suspend our prejudices, to hear from other people what's really going on here. And I love how the Apostle Peter, as I mentioned before, Peter's struggling with this issue. He speaks at the Jerusalem Council. He speaks well. He speaks accurately and properly. But it was hard for Peter. Peter 
was still struggling to treat Gentiles as full church members. We know that from Galatians 2, 11 through 14. But he was committed to learning from God. We need to be committed to learning from God. What God says about sexuality or eternal punishment or other hard truths trumps our feelings. We must never debate or contend in order to push a personal agenda, but to submit to Scripture. Contend to learn. Number three, the church teaches us in dealing with disagreements and controversy to communicate decisions with love and wisdom. We learn something even from the way the Jerusalem Council, having reached a conclusion through listening and learning, how they communicated that decision. How many church decisions have been good and, and, and fine, but the way that it was communicated may have brought trouble into the church. But the letter that the Jerusalem Council communicated to the churches relayed the church's decision with, with warmth and encouragement. With warmth and encouragement. The letter begins with the word greetings. It ends with the word farewell. There's, there's a sense of, of, of winsomeness and warmth. And the decision, we should also know, was not just written. It wasn't just a, you know, a, a letter stuffed in the, the mailboxes of the members of the Antiochian church. There was a letter sent, but there were messengers sent along to meet with the people, to communicate the uh, decision that was made. Um, Judas and Silas, we read in verses 32 and 33, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words for some time. I don't know how long that time was, but apparently it was enough time. It was enough time to make sure that the brothers understood the decision that was made so people weren't, weren't left to, to make their own conclusions. Paul and Barnabas did the same thing, we're told in verse 35. So, so Jerusalem here clearly isn't lording over the consciences of the Antiochian believers. They are ministering to their consciences, helping them understand, spending personal face-to-face -face time explaining and applying the decision of the council. Now, that's, that's one side of how to handle church disagreements. That is from the perspective of the leadership communicating uh, decisions with wisdom and love. But what about the other side of the coin? Well, the Jerusalem Council teaches us about that as well. The fourth application might be this. Comply with the decisions of the church. This incident shows how the church should speak so that members can receive church decisions, as our own church order says, with respect and submission as settled and binding. That's our responsibility as members of the church of Jesus Christ to receive decisions um, of the church uh, as, with respect and submission as settled in, as, and binding. When the church speaks, however weighty the issue may be, when the church speaks properly, God's people should pause, listen, submit. And that's the point that the leaders are making. Because they, they say in their deliberation, or, or in their communication rather, um, they talk about in verse 24, those who had made trouble in Antioch, who had come from Jerusalem and made trouble in Antioch, they were speaking by their own authority. 
When the Judaizers came into Antioch and said, you have to be circumcised, what the disciples are saying here is they weren't speaking as the church. They were speaking as individuals, giving their own opinions, which of course were wrong opinions, but they were giving their own opinions. They, they were not speaking as the church. But the council is saying that's not how we're speaking to you in giving our answer. We're not speaking as men who have their own opinion, who are conveying their own opinions. By the, the decision of the Jerusalem Council had the approval of the Holy Spirit. It has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us, the leaders say. So we need to receive as members church decisions with respect and submission as settled and binding. Now, of course, and this is one of the geniuses of, of a biblical form of church government, church decisions can be properly challenged. They can be properly challenged. But until church decisions are shown to be unbiblical, they must be respected. That's how we show that we're honoring the form of government taught to us by the apostles and recorded, for example, in Acts chapter 15. So number four, comply with the decisions of the church. Number five, as we're trying to handle disagreements in the church, we need to commit to change. Commit to change. The church protected the Gentiles in this instance from legalism. But the apostles also expected conformity to Christ even from new believers. So the apostles are saying, look, the troublers were wrong. You don't have to be circumcised to be saved. We're protecting you from legalism. But we're not giving you a free pass to behave however you want. The Gentiles came into the church sexually immoral. But they couldn't stay that way. They had to commit to change. They had to flee sexual immorality, as Paul will write to the Corinthians. As people learn uh, the gospel and turn to God, the Spirit leads them to greater maturity in obedience through the preaching of the Word. And that's what the apostles are doing here. They're preaching the Word to the Gentiles. You must turn from sexual immorality. You must um, honor the, the consciences of other believers in the church. You need to change. Obedience to the law isn't a condition for coming to Christ, but it is a condition for growing in Christ. So we must, in handling disagreements, commit to change. And then finally, number six, in handling disagreements, we need to learn to follow the example of the Jerusalem Council and celebrate the work of Jesus. Th this decision could have, made, could have been made perhaps in a purely technical, um, procedural way. But that's not how the church made the decision. They made the decision by focusing their attention on the beauty of Jesus celebrating the work of Jesus. When the believers at Antioch heard the report that Jesus was enough, they rejoiced. See, they're not just celebrating the fact that they don't have to get circumcised, though I'm sure that was part of it. 
they are celebrating the sufficiency of Jesus. We thought we were inadequate. We thought we were second-class citizens compared to the Jews. We thought we would never be enough. We thought we had to keep striving and striving, and, and, and maybe one day we'd measure up to the holiness of God. But you have told us, church, that Jesus is enough. And they celebrated. That's how to handle church disagreements. Now, that's not, of course, that's not, of course, the technical answer to every disagreement in the church. But what if we focused on that? What if in all our disagreements we focus on the sufficiency of Christ? What if we emphasized the gospel as good news? These Gentiles knew that they would never measure up to God, but they clung by faith, encouraged by church leaders to cling by faith to one who does measure up to God's standard. And they believed, these Gentiles did, that by grace, Jesus would in fact hold on to them with an eternal grip. Nothing will help the church cope with disagreement like celebrating Jesus. And so I'm sure what that looks like for the church in which I serve and this congregation, every church of Jesus Christ, is that we um, develop a culture in which the gospel is the best news that could ever be found in our bulletins. The, the, The best And the only answer to all of the questions that we have, where Jesus' sufficiency is the most beautiful news we could ever imagine. And so Acts 15 is much more than a glimpse into a business meeting of the early church. We could say it was a business meeting of the early church. But it's much more than that. It is evidence that Jesus rules his church then, now, and forever. And, and by his grace, the main message coming out of the council is that by his grace, Jesus will save and sanctify everyone who trusts in him, including you and including me. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you so much for the Bible, for your precious word that records this church meeting, this synodical assembly, and that by your grace and your goodness has been in some way reflected well in the synod meeting of the United Reformed Churches in North America. So we thank you for the model, not only of church government, but the model here of celebrating Jesus. Help us to do that more and more. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.